This teaching is from City Church Coventry. You can find us online at www.citychurchcoventry.org. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Great to worship the Lord together. We're a privileged people. You know, when I first got saved and I started reading the Bible, almost all my reading was from the Gospels. Um, I, I, I wasn't clever enough to grasp some of the theology of the epistles, but I found the stories of Jesus were things that I loved, and I still love them. I still love turning to those miracles and those teachings of Jesus, which are so easy to grasp and to follow. One of the things I discovered, however, when I was reading the Gospels, and that I have to confess surprised me, I didn't find anywhere a description of Jesus. You would think, wouldn't you, that in the Gospels, it's all about Jesus. They would have told us that he was six foot high, broad chested, big handed. You know, you'd have thought someone would have made mention of that. Now, I know modern scholarship says, well, you know, the Gospels were written at least 100 years after uh, Jesus walked the earth. I don't believe that for a moment. There's too much that rings of personal revelation, too much that rings of intimacy in the stories of the Bible. I know, I know Luke wasn't around because, uh, you know, he was, he, he, he was Paul's buddy. And, um, but he did make careful search. He did inquire. He did discover the truths of the gospel. I believe the gospel is the word of God. I don't believe it's something that was created hundreds of years after Jesus had walked on the earth. I believe it's the report of eyewitnesses, some of whom were intimately related with Jesus as his disciples. And that's why it surprises me even more that there's no descriptions. I'd have liked a description. One thing that you cannot help come to the conclusion, however, when you read the scriptures, the the gospels, is that Jesus was a prophet. It's something we don't always immediately take hold of because you and I know that he's something much more than that. And there are other religions, other philosophies that would believe Jesus was a prophet. But we can't get away from the fact that Jesus was a prophet. When he had personal encounters with some people, like the woman at the well, she says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. When he healed the man born blind and then he was interrogated by the religious leaders and they said to him, who do you say that he is? And the man says, he's a prophet. So those individual encounters left people with a strong conviction that they'd had a meeting with a prophet. Even the multitudes believed he was a prophet. (coughs) When Jesus healed, uh, when Jesus rather fed the multitude on the mountainside, some of them said, surely this is the prophet who should come into the world. 
When Jesus stops a funeral procession where a widow is on her way to bury her own son and he raises him from the dead, the people who are there say, surely a mighty prophet has arisen among us. When Jesus walked on earth, he was a prophet. In fact, he himself believed he was a prophet. When the scripture says, uh, or when Jesus says, it's impossible for any prophet to die except in Jerusalem, he was speaking about himself. He was the prophet. And that became a, 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 a familiar understanding, even his disciples. You remember on the Damascus Road when they're walking along downcast and Jesus draws near. He says, what's the matter, boys? Why are you so sad? Why are you so upset? And they say, well, it's all about Jesus, a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all the people. We had hoped that he was the one who would deliver Israel. The, the disciples believed he was a prophet. Was a, there was a general acceptance that this different man, this strange man who had lived among them and ministered for 30 years was a prophet. In fact, when uh, the writer to the Hebrews begins his great revelation of the purpose of God down through history, he begins with words like this. God, who at different times and in diverse ways spoke to our fathers through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us in his son. He's a prophet. When we come to the rest of the New Testament, we find right at the end there is a book that is exclusively prophetic. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation, <coughs> by the way, is not a book about Satan. It's not a book about the beast. It's not about 666. It's about Jesus. And it's a revelation of the strategy that Jesus has to bring the whole world under the influence of his kingdom. And it's a wonderful book because not only is it full of Jesus the prophet, it actually has a description of him worth waiting for. Let me take you to the first chapter of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has got a lot to teach us about prophecy and prophesying. And uh, in the first chapter, we've had a little bit of an illusion to this already this morning, but I want to pick it up again. It says this from verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches 
in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a dark, sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am the living one, I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand And of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What a revelation. What a a vision of Christ. If you and I were to see him like that in his glory, in his resurrection power, I guarantee that every one of us would fall at his feet as though dead. We couldn't bear that glory, that majesty, that aura of power that surrounds the risen Christ. And yet he is the one with whom we have to do. He's never going to be your mate or your pal. He will always be your friend. But on another level altogether... Because he is different to us. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Some interesting things happened here. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. If you and I want to hear the prophetic word, if you and I want to really get it into our hearts, what God is saying to the churches, we need to be in the spirit. What does that mean? It means you're not lingering in the flesh. You're not hanging around in the everyday, ordinary. But you've set your heart and mind to come into the presence of the Lord. And even then, he surprises you. Even then he turns up. And it's interesting. You think, John, I'm utterly convinced that John, who brings us this revelation, is the John who wrote the gospel. Uh, There's far too much linkage between the two to believe anything else. And we know that John, from the gospels, calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. We know that they went fishing together. We know that this John leaned on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper 
We know that this is the John (coughs) to whom Jesus entrusted his mother. So you'd think, wouldn't you, that when Jesus turned up, at least he'd be looking in the right direction. He says, but I heard a voice behind me. And we've already been told this morning that whenever the word of God comes, we have to line our our lives up with it. See, John, this aged now apostle, this man of faith, this man of revelation, this man of power, even he, when he meets Christ, has to line his life up with the word of God. And that's what we did this morning. When Keris brought us that exhortation, we, we turned our lives around. We're lining up with the word of God. And that's what John did. He says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. He turned to see Jesus, but he saw the church. And the reason for that is, although Jesus is still the ultimate prophet of God, today he's speaking through his church. You see, unless we believe that Jesus is a prophet, how can we become prophetic? Because prophet isn't something we're striving to be. It's what we are. Because we are the sons and daughters of the living God. And he, the great prophet has called to himself a prophetic church to carry on the ministry of winning the world for his kingdom. And so we get this wonderful, wonderful uh, picture of the risen, glorified Christ from his snowy, woolly hair all the way down to his burnished bronze feet. Glorious, wonderful, awesome, breathtaking, fall at his feet, dead kind of meeting. But interestingly, although John has that incredible encounter, he seems to be indelibly drawn to one particular (coughs) physical thing about Jesus. In fact, the first encounter he has with Jesus is I heard a voice behind me like a trumpet. The voice of Jesus is like a trumpet. And if you go all the way through the scriptures, you'll discover that the trumpet is often a metaphor for the prophetic word of God. We haven't got time to pursue all that this morning, but let me tell you that again and again and again through the word of God, God's prophetic voice, the voice that speaks to his people is like a trumpet. Let me give you one example. This is in uh, Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 1. This is a messianic uh, commission of God to his son. And it says this, Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people. 
So the trumpet is to declare to God's people. In this particular instance, it's to remind them of their rebellion and their sin. But the trumpet voice is God speaking to his people. We've heard that in the exhortations and the teachings we've had over the last couple of months. (coughs) And Paul even uses it himself when he's telling us how to move in the spirit, operate spiritual gifts and to prophesy. He says, if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself for battle? When you and I bring the prophetic word, it must be like a trumpet sound. It must have clarity. It must have a sharpness. It cannot be ambiguous. You know, it's got to be, it's got to be clear and concise. And then later on, John says, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. <coughs> and you think, God, that's, that's, that's odd, actually. Let's, let's be honest. That's, that's, that's odd. Voices like the sound of rushing waters. What on earth does that mean? But again, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. The Bible explains itself. If you read it and become familiar with it, you know what's right and you know how God confirms his word with his word. And the first place we find the sound of rushing waters is in the opening chapter of the prophet Ezekiel. Do you remember Ezekiel is in the captive, he's been taken captive, he's in Babylon and he has a vision. The heavens were opened, he says, and I saw visions of God. And what he saw was the, the chariot of heaven upon which sat one who looked like the son of man. He's seeing Jesus, or not Jesus then. He wasn't Jesus until he was born hundreds of years later. But the son of man on his chariot, on his throne, being carried on the shoulders of the heavenly beings, the four living creatures. And Ezekiel tells us that the sound of their wings was like the sound of rushing waters. And so that sound of rushing waters is the sound that surrounds the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's first and foremost, it's a sound of praise. The wings make a rushing waters sound that is always heard <coughs> in the presence of God. And so the prophetic voice of Jesus sounds like rushing waters. Well, what does that mean for us? Because if that's the sound that he makes, what's the sound that we're supposed to make? Well, the Bible is a book that has mysteries in it. Many, many of them have been revealed to us. The whole idea of the gospel is a mystery that was hidden for long ages past, but is now made known. But there are still mysteries 
to come to become revelations. And one of the great mysteries is the mystery of praise and worship. Let, let me read you a little verse from Job. Poor old Job, he's, he's really had a tough time. And um, at the end of it all, God rebukes him. You know? And God, God, God confronts him with his, got a kind of sense of, not arrogance, but his sense of, you know, a bit of a know-it-all kind of. And God says to him, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? When all the morning stars sang together and the angels of heaven shouted with joy. You see, when God laid the foundations of the earth, when God began his great act of creation, heaven was full of music. You think, well, why? There's no human heart to be stirred by it. There's no human ear to be attracted to it. There's no human spirit to rise in response to it. Why was heaven full of music? Why was it full of song? It's because that's what heaven is like. Before there was a man to hear it, There was a heavenly host to sing it. Heaven itself is full of music. You see, if God is the ultimate creator, if all things were created by him and for him, it means music and song was also created by him and for him. See, someone didn't just suddenly invent music it's part of God's great creation and it's something that was there before creation came into being and in a sense I want to suggest to us this morning that that kind of singing is prophetic singing and that God himself is a singer. In fact, the Bible tells me that. If I, uh, if, if I could turn you to um, uh, the book of Zephaniah, you all know where that is. Chapter 3 and verse 7. The prophet Zephaniah has been rebuking God's people. In fact, most of the prophets rebuke God's people. It seems to be part of their job. Um, but he comes to this place. In chapter 3 and verse 7, he says, The Lord your God is with you. It's good to know, isn't it? Even at times of rebuke, it's good to know God is with us. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. <coughs> he will... He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. 
he will rejoice over you with singing. God sings. Verse 17, I'm sorry. He sings over you. I'll tell you why that's prophetic singing. Because this morning he's singing over you even though you are who you are. And God's prophetic singing is because he knows what you're going to become. He has more faith in you than you have in yourself. God knows that that which he's begun in you, he will bring to completion in Christ Jesus. Therefore he sings. And maybe the accuser of the brethren is out there in the wings somewhere saying, huh, have you seen him lately? And God says, I see him all the time. And yet you're singing, I know what he's going to be. I know what she's going to become. I know what I've destined for them. And that's great cause for singing. So God, when he sings, sings prophetically. Doesn't sing just about what is. He sings about what will be. What is more, Jesus is a singer. Hebrews chapter 2. And this is a quote from Psalm 22. <clears throat> and you remember Psalm 22 is one of that, those great messianic psalms about the suffering of Jesus, about him carrying our sins and so on. And then it ends with a, with a declaration of faith. And it says this in, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now the writer to the Hebrews has already established here that what Jesus came to do was bring many sons to glory. See, Jesus saved you to bring you to glory. I don't mean just to take you to heaven. I mean to bring you to that place where the glory of God is seen on you. He's bringing many sons to glory. It's a journey. We're being changed from one degree of glory to another. Until we are conformed to the image of Christ. And Jesus, it says, in the midst of the congregation. Jesus is here this morning. In the midst of the congregation. And he's walking up and down the rows. And he's hesitating over people. And he's saying, Father, thank you for allowing me to redeem this man, this woman. And thank you that their redemption was just the first step towards their glorification. They may be struggling right now. Maybe having a tough time right now. You see, I already know what I'm going to do with them. I already know what I'm going to make them into. And this morning, he's praising the Father for you. There's a lot of singing going on. The Father rejoicing over you with singing. The Son in the midst of us singing praise to his Father Why shouldn't we join in such a song as that? Mm 
because the Father sings and the Son sings and the Holy Spirit inspires us to sing. You see, there's a lot more, I think, when Paul talks to us about spiritual songs. I think spiritual songs will always have a prophetic edge to them. And I think we need to start to learn how to sing about things that will be and not just things that are. Oh, I know we do that. We've got songs that declare our faith in the coming of the kingdom of God. But I think I'm pretty convinced that there's a whole new dimension. So that when we sing, we're making the same sound that surrounds the throne of Jesus. And that when he sings and the Father sings and we sing, things are bound to happen. It's inevitable the dynamic change will take place. <clears throat> that really is the burden of what I wanted to share this morning, but there's one other thing that we can't avoid because John couldn't avoid it either. As he kept looking, he said, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. I like to think that Jesus is armed to the teeth. <laughs> out of his mouth a two-edged sword and that again shouldn't surprise us because scripture's already prepared us for that in his prophetic declaration of the son of God in Isaiah chapter 49 and the opening verses <coughs> this is the Messiah speaking he says listen to me you islands Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. And it's the word that he speaks to the, the islands and the distant nations. <coughs> it's the prophetic word that he speaks to the world. We've been exhorted this morning to turn our faces outward and rightly so. We're here to win the world. The great American evangelist D.L. Moody <coughs> was once asked, Mr. Moody, what's the best way to win the world? And Moody's answer was one at a time. He was a great and successful evangelist and uh, won many people to Christ one at a time. Makes the task much more manageable, doesn't it? But we must learn to evangelize prophetically. Like Jesus with the woman at the well, suddenly he uncovers her whole lifestyle. 
He doesn't have to say, well, thus saith the Lord, I see you are a woman of great trouble. He just says, she says, I don't have a husband. He says, oh, that's right. How nice to meet somebody who tells the truth. You don't have a husband, do you? You've had five husbands, mine. And the one you now have is not your husband. So when you said you don't have a husband, you were telling me the truth. Oh, she said, I perceive you are a prophet. Didn't take much perception, but there she are. She saw, she saw that he was a prophet. And God's going to give you words. We might call them words of knowledge. We might call them prophecies. We might call them insights. But God will illumine our spirit to say the right word at the right time. Do you remember Philip the evangelist who, who's carried down into the wilderness and meets that Ethiopian eunuch uh, who'd been in Jerusalem and he's on his way back now and he's sitting, he's sitting in the chariot reading the prophet Isaiah and he's reading that bit that says uh, he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities and and he says, he says to the evangelist, um, who's he speaking about? Is he talking about himself or somebody else? And he says, I'm beginning with that very scripture. Philip preached Christ to him. See, these are what my friend Larry Chomsack used to call divine encounters. Those moments that God has woven together to bring you to the right place and the right person at the right time. And to give you openings. I might probably told you this story. I, uh, but, but I don't get the opportunity to speak to many unbelievers. <coughs> but a few years ago, I went to the barbers. I only have to go every few years. But <laughs> and I was sitting in the seat and chatting away. And I'm not good at small talk. I hope this barber doesn't, you know. Start talking about football or summer holidays or, you know. And he said to me, yeah, what's your job then? And I thought, this is going to fold up straight away. I said, I'm a preacher. Oh, he said, do you give blessings? I said, yes, I do. He said, will you give me one? I said, as soon as you finish cutting my hair... I will give you a blessing. So I'm, I get up out of the chair. There's a row of people waiting for their haircuts. And I said, give me your hand. And I held his hand. And I prayed that the greatest blessing that God could give a man would come upon him. That he would come to know Jesus. That he'd find Christ as his Lord and Savior. Got a little captive congregation there, row of people. <laughs> I only came for a haircut, you know. Now, I don't know what happened to him, but I sowed a seed. And I occasionally pray for that man, that that seed will germinate. See, God will give us opportunities. And we bring the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, there's a great task out there for us to fulfill. But we have a great father and a great saviour 
and a great Holy Spirit. And you are a great people. And we cannot fail. Thanks for listening to this teaching from City Church Coventry. You can find more great teaching and other resources on our website at www.citychurchcoventry.org.